Well, if you would stand, we're coming to uh, another, pa- another sermon here in this passage of Hebrews. If you've been here for a number of weeks, you're probably wondering, why are we reading the same passage every week? And that's because we're focusing on different parts of Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. So we're reading it out during uh, the beginning time, and then Pastor Moody will be focusing on just one aspect of this very rich passage of God's Word. So Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that is open for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's Word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let me encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Hebrews uh, chapter 10. Uh, We're looking, as uh, Pastor Eric said, uh, at this uh, section of God's Word, and we've been doing it over the summer And we'll continue through uh, the rest of the summer as we look into the book of Hebrews. And the verse we're looking at in particular this morning is Hebrews 10, verse 22. So let me uh, read that verse out for us as uh, we center our minds and hearts upon what it is that God has to say for us this morning. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So what we're focusing on this morning is this teaching about drawing near and what that really means. As we've been seeing uh, through uh, our study in the book of Hebrews, Uh, The author of Hebrews, uh, we don't know exactly who wrote the book of Hebrews, as early church leader Oregon uh, once said, God alone knows who wrote uh, the the book of Hebrews. But though we don't know who uh, wrote it, uh, uh, who the human author was, we have confidence that it is Scripture, it comes of God's authority. Uh, The early church recognized the book of Hebrews. Uh, They had uh, basically two criteria by which they accepted books into the Bible. Uh, The first was that it was written by an apostle. The second was that it had apostolic um, authority behind it. So either authored by an apostle or authorized by an apostle with the stamp of approval. And very early on, the church, uh, though it wasn't sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, recognized that this came with the authority, the apostolic authority. And so we, uh, we approach it in that regard to listen to what God has to say to us uh, through His Word. And as the author of Hebrews we've been seeing has been uh, describing to us how it is better to worship Jesus. 
You remember that he's writing to Jewish Christians uh, in all likelihood, and the Jewish Christians at the time were being tempted to go back to Judaism. Judaism, with all its impressive ceremonies and sacrifices, the beautiful temple, all its heritage and history and tradition, was a matter of great attractiveness for the Jewish Christians, particularly because they were probably facing significant persecution for naming the name of Christ, and therefore why not go back to this uh, Old Testament religion that God had given? Was that not the right strategic move to make for them? And so the author of Hebrews is writing to them, encouraging them not to go back to Judaism, but to stay with the New Testament church because, he says, Jesus is better. It's a comparative message all the way through that Jesus is better. And as we've been looking in the book of Hebrews, we've seen how we are, as it were, sometimes it feels like we're entering into a bit of a foreign, different world, a world of religious terminology that is not familiar to us, Uh, temple language, language about blood and sacrifice, uh, and uh, priests and the great priests and, and all this. It feels like we're entering into a different world, and we have to decode some of what he's saying, uh, words and terminology that would have been very familiar to his uh, Jewish audience at the time, but is not familiar to us. We have to decode it to understand uh, what he is indeed uh, saying. And this religious world of theirs can seem very unfamiliar to us, but at a deeper level, It has great resonance. Our temptation today is not so much that we might go back to Judaism. I'd be surprised if many of us were facing that temptation. But our temptation is to go forward. Yes, we still want spirituality. We still want, in the language of the text we're looking at this morning, to draw near, to encounter God. Uh, But we begin to look at new, uh, new and Um, different ways to go forward that won't face the same stigma that gathering in a Bible teaching church does sometimes create today. And uh, so, though the language is in some ways very unfamiliar, in another way has has a deeper resonance. Indeed, it's becoming clear that our society is not so much moving towards a secularization a non-religious society, as to a different kind of spirituality, a different kind of religion. Uh, The Bible says that God has put eternity into our hearts, and when people stop believing in God, the God of the Bible, it's not because they stop desiring some kind of transcendence, some kind of spiritual experience. They just go to many different kinds of spiritualities. And that is exactly what's happening. There's a new book that's come out uh, called Strange Rites, R-I-T-E-S. And this book uh, describes uh, what's going on in Manhattan, uh, New York City. Of course, New York City is in many ways often the petri dish for new ideas, uh, new experiments with life and philosophy. And this book, Strange Rites, R-I-T-E-S, that is uh, Strange Religious Experiences, Strange Spiritualities, describes how the club scene 
in Manhattan, whereas 10 years or so ago, it was, of course, rife with immorality of various kinds, but deeply secularized. Today, the same club scene has various kinds of um, spiritualities, mysticisms attached to it. Similarly, this book uh, describes how the uh, tech giants of our age, uh, Google and Facebook, are introducing to their employees techniques of mindfulness with explicit uh, derivation from Buddhist and Hindu um, practices. And so what we're seeing is an ongoing deep desire for connection to draw near but of a new and different kind going forward. In fact, it may well be the case uh, that the pandemic that, of course, we're gradually coming out of, uh, it seems, may actually have um, sped up this process. There's a new study that's come out from Yale University by someone called Nicholas Christakis, who has identified what he calls three shifts that take place uh, after pandemics, typically. They are, uh, first, the collective threat prompts a growth in state power. And of course, we've seen that, haven't we, with all these mandated lockdowns and all the rest. Um, second, he says, and this is the one that is relevant to what we're talking about here, the overturning of everyday life leads to a search for meaning. And uh, I'll bring that out in just a moment. But the third one, and the closeness of death, which brings caution while the disease rages, spurs audacity when it is past. In other words, after the pandemic, there's usually a party. And that's the typical structure. And this one, the overturning of everyday life leads to a search for meaning, is, it seems, happening. He says uh, there's evidence of a renewed search for meaning. For instance, the shift towards identity politics on both the right and the left. We want to be associated with something or someone bigger than ourselves. We're looking for meaning. But he says it goes bigger than that. So, for instance, roughly, he says, one in five people in Italy and the Netherlands, that's, of course, Holland, told Pew, uh, the pollster, that the pandemic had made their countries more religious. There's a desire for meaning. There's a hunger for meaning. And so while the language of this book seems uh, foreign to us, it's a different world, in another way it has great resonance. One final obvious illustration of this as we get into the text is, of course, the world of Harry Potter. Harry Potter, and I, I've read the Harry Potter books and so have my children, and I have no desire to sort of throw J.K. Rowling under the bus. I think actually some of her imagery is deeply embedded with Christian themes, though I don't know whether she would claim to be a Christian or not. So I'm not trying to throw all that under the bus, but nonetheless it is interesting that that storyline has had such um, deep and ongoing connection with our world today because, of course, what people are looking for is to get out of what she calls the muggle world and to find the world of magic, the connection. They want to draw near. And in the world of Harry Potter, you do that by going to Diagon Alley 
and you perform a magical incantation and the world opens up to the world of magic. There's a door. There's a door that is open, but that door is not, of course, Harry Potter. It's Jesus Christ. So how do we draw near to God? And the author of Hebrews is going to tell us. He says, let us draw near. Now, we need to decode that a little bit because actually he's using specifically Old Testament temple language. When he says draw near, it is not simply a sort of sentimental um, Christian subculture emotion that he's looking for. It's actually using specific Old Testament temple technical language for coming into the holy presence of God. So John Owen, the great um, uh, theologian, perhaps the greatest theologian that Britain has ever produced, though I suppose Anselm of Canterbury or the Venerable Bede might disagree, but uh, John Owen, who's worth listening to at any rate, put it like this. He said, the word for draw near, it's a single word in the original, the word, that word is whereby the whole performance of all divine solemn worship was constantly expressed. Of course, he's talking about the Old Testament language. Now, I'll just give you one quotation from the Old Testament to um, confirm that. So, for instance, in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, the priest Aaron, who, of course, is the great high priest, Aaron, he's told, uh, Leviticus 21, verse 17, this, none of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach, or the word in Greek is the same word as here translated draw near, to offer the bread of his God. There were certain techniques that you needed to draw near. There were certain requirements that you had to fulfill to draw near. Or as the great Dutch theologian uh, from Princeton, Gerhardus Voss, put it, he put it like this. Back of this stands the idea, this meaning uh, the word for draw near, back of this stands the idea the priest brings near his sacrifice as well as then bringing near those who follow him. So we are brought near by Jesus as our high priest and forerunner. So the author of the book of Hebrews is making this point about drawing near, actually over and over again throughout the book. Uh, you can find it in chapter 4, verse 16. Chapter 4, verse 16, he says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Or again, he says, uh, chapter 7 and verse uh, 19, for the law made nothing perfect. So the law was not the end point. The law is pointing beyond to Jesus. The law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better, again that word better, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Or uh, chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, the author of Hebrews says, he, that is Jesus, 
is able to save to the uttermost or completely. It's the final uh, sacrifice for the complete salvation. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, through Jesus, since He always lives to make intercession uh, for them. Or then uh, chapter 10, uh, verse 1, he's, he's making the same uh, uh, kind of point. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things, the law is only a shadow, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continue offered every, every year, make perfect those who draw near. So in the Old Testament, they're attempting to draw near, but it doesn't work. It's pointing to a bigger reality, and that bigger reality is, of course, um, Christ. And therefore, in our passage, he says, therefore, brothers, uh, since we have confidence into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, the door that is open, he opened for us through the curtain, then let us draw near. He makes the same point uh, afterwards in chapter 12, where he compares the Old Testament uh, worship with New Testament worship. So chapter 12, verse 18, he says, for you have not come or you have not drawn near to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. He's talking there about the experience of the the Israelites, when they gathered around Mount Sinai and the law was given. But we have not come, we have not drawn near to that which may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. But, verse 22 of chapter 12, but you have come or you have drawn near to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering. What he's talking about there, friends, is not heaven after you die. He's talking about the experience of the New Testament worshiper, the city of God, the festal gathering, whereby we draw near to the holy. It says uh, in the beginning of our passage, to the holy places, literally to the holy to the presence of God Himself. Now, I really want you to grasp this. I think this is, in many ways, the most significant aspect of what it really means to worship God and to connect with Him for many people today. I want you to grasp this. Let me, let me quote again from uh, that great Dutch theologian, Gerhardus Voss, uh, who was at Princeton. This is what he said. He's going to use a couple of Greek words that I'll explain, but the, 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 the way he talks about it really helps, I think. So he said this, Christianity is not a douleia, that's one Greek word that I'll explain, but a latreia, another Greek word, that is a direct worship of God. Duleia is the word for service or indeed slavery. So when we come to a worship service, it is not as a Christian we come as a slave with God distant and us as a servant. Christianity is not a duleia, it is a latreia, a direct 
worship of God through Jesus Christ. We draw near. You don't need to go through a saint. You don't need to go through Mary. You don't need to perform certain ritual washings. Uh, Contemporarily, you don't need techniques of mindfulness. You draw near through Christ into the very holy presence of God. I uh, remember when I was a uh, missionary, I served in a country which had a long and great ancient Christian heritage. And uh, I don't in any way mean to be critical of that long, great ancient Christian heritage. They were protecting the church at a time when many other uh, countries in Europe were very, very far away from Christianity. So it was a long and great ancient heritage. But as I was in that country, I wanted to get to know the various uh, traditions and techniques and rituals that had grown up over time. And one of the things I did was I went to one of these great ancient churches that represented that ancient uh, tradition uh, over Easter. And I think it was Good Friday when I was there. And I was watching, uh, fascinated with how they would worship, with how they would draw near. And what I observed uh, to my bemusement was uh, worshippers, each with a lamb, L-A-M-B, a lamb, on the end of a um, piece of string or a lead or something, and in the other hand, a plastic bag. I really wasn't sure what the plastic bag was for. And they stood in line waiting for the priest who had an assistant behind him, uh, next to him. And as I watched, one after the other, they brought the lamb to the priest who then ceremonially, right there and then, sacrificed the lamb. And now I discover what the plastic bag was for. Having sacrificed the lamb, the the, the poor chap was cut up into little pieces and skinned and put into the plastic bag, and I presume taken home and cooked and eaten. Now, as I say, it's a great ancient heritage, and I presume the point the reason why that was originally begun was to try to emphasize to the people that Jesus is the Lamb of God who died to take away the sin of the world. I presume that was the original point, but the effect of that tradition over years of accretion and time and ritual and misunderstanding, the effect of it was to make the people feel that they needed every time to find a new sacrifice a new ritual, a new ceremony to approach God. Of course, all that is wrong. We must draw near through Christ and His blood. Direct worship of God through Jesus. The door to Diagon Alley is open and you may go in. There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is open. 
and you may go in at Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. Well, you say, okay, but how? How do I, how do I go in? How do I draw near? Well, the author of Hebrews um, uh, tells us in, in four ways. Now, as I said, this instruction, let us draw near, is the first of three ones we'll be looking at in subsequent weeks. Uh, verse 23 is, let us hold fast. And then verse 24 is, let us consider. And we're looking this morning at verse 22, let us draw near. And he has here actually uh, four specific ways uh, that he tells us uh, to draw near. And we don't have time to get into them all in great detail, but I will uh, briefly explain them. As I say, there are four. Let us draw near with a true heart, that's one, in full assurance of faith, that's uh, the second, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, that's third, and then our bodies washed with pure water. Let's, that's how to draw near. So first of all, he says, uh, with a true heart. And obviously what the author of Hebrews means is that our worship of God must be sincere. We must mean what we say and mean what we sing. It must come from our heart, with a true heart. Uh, David in Psalm 51 famously says the same thing, uh, when he says to, that God, to God, surely you desire truth in the innermost parts. Uh, the, the, the internal needs to match the external. You need to be sincere. Or Jesus says the same thing in John chapter 4 where he's uh, talking to the, the woman at the well in Samaria and he says that uh, God is spirit and his worshippers will worship in him spirit and in truth. It's a true heart. You mean what you say. We mean what we sing. Now, my friends, my uh, strong suspicion is that this one is the biggest barrier to truly encountering Christ, to drawing near that uh, people who come from Christian backgrounds and Christian families and went to Christian schools and grew up in the church, this is the biggest barrier that most from that background experience. It's so easy, isn't it, to live on Christianese, to live on the jargon. What happens, I think, is someone grows up in a Christian home um, but they don't really understand it. But they have Christian friends and they go to a Christian school. And now it's a little awkward, isn't it? You, you have absolutely no idea what it means to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Uh, but you're not going to tell someone that because how can you? And so we, we don't come with a true heart. We're not being sincere about what we actually think. Well, of course, God cannot be mocked. If we don't mean what we sing, it's not going to mean much to us, is it? 
And that's the first one. It needs to be with a true heart. And then he says, in full assurance of faith. Now, this is a, uh, as much as the other one was obvious, this one is the reverse. It's actually not saying what it at first glance seems to be saying. So when we read this, we think it means uh, our category in Christian uh, subculture of the assurance of faith. But the word translated for assurance here, which is pleuraphoria, does not mean in this context assurance, as Christians often use that term to mean, mean being really sure that you're saved. No, what, when the author of Hebrews uses this term, he's talking about full satisfaction in Jesus as the only way of drawing near to God. Now, let me quote again from John Owen on this. He's very good here. And by the way, I'm quoting from John Owen a few times as I go through the book of Hebrews because Owen actually wrote, um, I think it's six volumes on the book of Hebrews, and so he has a lot to say. Owen said this, the full assurance of faith here respects not the assurance that any have of their own salvation, nor any degree of such an assurance. It is only the full satisfaction of our souls and consciences in the reality and efficacy of the priesthood of Christ. And that's a fairly complicated way of putting it. But in other words, what he's saying is this. In order to draw near to God, you need to put your faith in Christ and in Christ alone. Uh, the, the author of the book of the Hebrews um, explains this in chapter 11, verse 6. He says, uh, without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God, again, near to God, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You see, there is a door. It is open. The name of that door is Christ. But in order to go through that door, you can't be half of you trying to go through another door too. You've got to go through this door and this door alone. You cannot worship God and money. You cannot worship God and fit in the blank with your idol, fame, success. It has to be Christ and Christ alone. You have to go through that door and only that door. Not your own efforts, not your own ideas, not your own techniques of mindfulness, simply Christ. And then uh, the author of Hebrews says that to draw near it needs to be with our hearts sprinkled uh, from an evil uh, conscience. And, of course, he's referring here to the ritual sprinkling of blood of sacrifice animals in the Old Testament. Uh, so, most famously, Moses, after the giving of the law, uh, we're told in uh, Exodus 24, verse 8, uh, the, the law has been given, and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. Can you imagine being there? You sacrifice an animal, take the blood, and throw it on the worshippers. You think he was trying to make a point, which of course he was. He took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words, the words being the words of the law. 
And as we've seen, that's a shadow of the reality of the blood of Christ. Our evil conscience, what is that? Our evil conscience is that inner voice that tells us that what we did was wrong, that we've erred and strayed like lost sheep. And the author of Hebrews is saying that can only be assuaged by applying the blood of Jesus. There is power in the blood, wonder-working power, power in the blood of Jesus. But what does it mean to have Jesus' blood sprinkled on us? What does that actually mean? It means for the first time when you become a real Christian, and each and every time we come to worship, we apply the blood of Jesus to our conscience. There's that inner voice that says, I've done wrong. The inner voice that says, I'm not worthy. What's the solution? Well, the world tells us the solution to that is to believe in yourself. The uh, L'Oreal famous slogan, because I'm worth it. We say to ourselves, I'm worth it. I have value. You tell yourself that over and over again to try and assuage your conscience, but your conscience keeps on coming back. Why? Because when you tell yourself you have value, the natural question is, what if you have value, why do you do that? If you're so worthy, why do you do what is worth less? Why do I feel this jealousy or even this hate? And the author of Hebrews is saying the only solution is to apply the blood of Jesus. Let me, let me explain that. When we sin, the Bible is clear, we deserve to die. And a lot of people think, well, that's very unfair. Let me explain it. Think of it like this. If someone finds a scrap of paper in an office that someone else has written a few of their best thoughts on, and instead of giving that scrap of paper back to the individual and saying, here's your, your notes or your poem or whatever it was, in a fit of pique and jealousy, picks up the scrap of paper, rips it, rips it up and throws it in a trash can. Now, that's bad. But I don't think any of us would say that deserves death. Imagine instead, though, that uh, the same individual goes to the Art Institute of Chicago and sees not a scrap of paper, but uh, the famous, uh, a famous painting by Van Gogh or Van Gogh, however you pronounce it, great work of art, and rips that piece of art off the wall and tears it into shreds. In both instances, there's a ripping and a tearing, but the consequences in the crime is different and bigger depending upon what it is that is ripped or torn. Let's make it personal. Say there's a couple of men who've uh, gone to a bar and uh, they've drunk a bit too much and one of them gets a little angry and he punches the other guy in the face and there's a bit of fight that ensues and the police are called and he gets dragged off to jail to sleep off the alcohol overnight and he's let free the next morning. But say instead that same man and he gets up that morning, goes for a walk in the park and still feeling very angry, he finds a mother with a baby in a stroller, picks up the baby and punches the baby right in the face. It's the same punch it's the same man, it's against someone different. And the crime 
is uh, different, therefore, and the punishment is different as a consequence. You and I have sinned against the beauty of beauties, the holy of holies, the infinite majesty of the universe, and the only possible consequence of that is death eternally. There must be blood. And look, there is blood. Look, conscience, there is one whose blood was shed for you. Your crime was bad. It deserves death. And one died for you. So to assuage your evil conscience, you apply the blood of Jesus. You apply it when you become a Christian as I hope you will this morning. And you apply it each and every time you come to worship. It's the bane of public worship that people do not apply the blood of Jesus. And no wonder we do not feel a connection because our consciences are still evil, still guilty. We must apply the blood of worship, the blood of Jesus every time we come to worship. Well, then finally, um, the author of Hebrews says this, Uh, to draw near must be with our bodies washed with pure water. Now, some people say this refers to baptism. I'm convinced it does not. Those of you who know me will know that I take baptism very seriously. I grew up in the Church of England, which, of course, practices infant baptism. And then I was baptized as a believer, as an adult, in my mid-20s or so, when I became convinced of that. And by so doing, uh, turned my back on a lot of privileges and opportunities that I would have had otherwise. So I take it very seriously, uh, baptism. Uh, But I'm convinced this does not refer either to infant or believer's baptism, both of which are honorable traditions. It was just my own conscience on that. For as the blood here is not literal, so the water is not literal either. If you don't uh, believe me on this, listen to John Calvin. Calvin put it like this. What follows about the body washed with pure water is taken by most people as referring to baptism, but to me it seems more likely that the apostle is alluding to the old ceremonies of the law, and by the word water means the Spirit of God. As Ezekiel says in 36 verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water upon you. Now, John Calvin, when he writes, is always highly abbreviated, so he doesn't explain much there. But in that chapter in Ezekiel, chapter 36, the prophet is describing that great day when the Spirit of God will come upon God's people in the New Testament church, and the, Im- the image and illustration he uses for that is of water. And so I'm convinced that what the author of Hebrews here is talking about is the work of the Spirit. As Jesus put it, those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. And so to draw near to God, we need to seek the work of the Spirit of God to renew us, to empower us. Not just then to have our consciences assuaged with the blood of Jesus, but to have our actions freshly inspired and motivated, the deeds of our body as well as the intentions of our heart washed and renewed. 
Well, as we come to a close, um, we're going to finish uh, with a, a story, a very well-known story, probably perhaps one of, if not the most well-known stories of conversion in all of the church. And for many of you, it will be familiar. I'm sure you won't mind me going through it again because it's, it's such a beautiful story, but also so relevant to what we're talking about. And for some of you, it will be unfamiliar. I'm talking about Charles Spurgeon's conversion, the great Baptist preacher. What is sometimes not realized, though, is how close Spurgeon came to atheism. In his autobiography, Spurgeon describes how it crossed his mind that there was no God, no Christ, no heaven, no hell. Sounds very like John Lennon's Imagine song, doesn't it? I began, he says, to doubt that there was a world. I doubted everything until at last the devil floated by, making me doubt my own existence. The very extravagance of the doubt proved its absurdity. And there came a voice which said, and can this doubt be true? In other words, he doubted his doubts. And often that's the first step to moving out of atheism to real faith. And then very famously, one wintry Sunday morning, January the 6th, 1850, the bad weather meant that he attended a church he had not intended to church attend. It was a primitive Methodist church. And that 15-year-old sat there with no more than a dozen people or so, and the minister who got up was not intended to preach that morning because the minister hadn't been able to get to church because the weather was so bad. And into the pulpit climbed someone who obviously had had to make it up very fast that morning because of the weather, and as Spurgeon described in rather funny ways, uh, was a person of very modest gifts. And uh, he had a text, though, a great text, which was this, Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Listen to Spurgeon, how he describes it. Spurgeon says this, He had not much to say, thank God. For that compelled him to keep repeating the text. I remember how he said, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, Look. Now, looking don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger, it is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, but you can look. A child can look. And apparently the preacher rambled on like this for minute after minute, another ten minutes or so, and then lacking any other material, he finally stared out of the congregation and picked out the young Spurgeon and addressed him directly. He said this, young man, you look very miserable. Spurgeon described his feelings on being addressed from the pulpit like that. He said this, well, I did look miserable, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit about my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow struck right home. The preacher carried on. And you always will be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this command, this moment, you will be saved. And then uh, 
the preacher shouted at the top of his voice, as Spurgeon says, I think only a primitive Methodist can. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. And Spurgeon says, I did look. I saw at once the way of salvation. Oh, that I, oh, I could have looked, he says, until I could have almost looked my eyes away. Then and there the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which alone looks to Him. And so, my dear friends, that is how, through Christ, we draw near. Let's pray together. Would you now look to Christ? and Him alone. Oh, we thank You, Lord Jesus, for this, Your Word, and the truth that it contains, that we may draw near. And we bless You and praise You in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.